Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. You know, we're over 40 episodes into our podcast here, and I don't know that we've ever had a conversation explicitly about salvation, the idea of being saved, what it means to be saved. When I say salvation, what do you think of, Jeremy? Immediately what comes to mind. I'm not looking for the correct pastoral answer. Maybe you will give me the correct pastoral answer. What, when I say salvation, what's, what comes to mind? Um, <laughs> a lot of things. We used to do this warm up with our high school band, and it was called Salvation. And uh, really, lovely song. Yeah, it was it was really good. Um, and I think that I I would also agree that I would say salvation. There's a lot of misconception. Um, a lot of of thinking. We've made it, we've turned it into a thing that I think there is some simplicity to it, but we've almost made it so simple that it's a, it's an ending rather than a beginning that, that we have, have turned it into, if you say this prayer, then that's the end rather than the beginning of a journey of trying to be like Jesus and learning what that means and what that looks like. And so I feel like we, we've sold it short for what it actually is biblically and, and theologically and holistically. And so, like I said, we've turned it into an end rather than a beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I think if you were asking me about salvation, I think immediately when I think about salvation, I think about Billy Graham. I think about evangelists calling people to be saved. And what they mean by that is to pray a prayer of salvation. We have made up this term in Christianity, this prayer of salvation. Probably people think of fire and brimstone sermons like fear. Um, I'm going to scare you or... um make this emotional plea to uh, eternity, maybe salvation, uh, the word that comes to mind sometimes when you think about the word salvation is eternity and and what, where are you going to be forever um, is is a lot of a term that gets used a lot uh, when, when people talk about salvation. So probably those things. Yeah. And many more if we just were to sit here and talk and think. Yeah. But I think, I think what's interesting to think about as Christians, hold on, here it is. Jesus didn't talk about salvation in the sense that we get people talking about salvation in Acts, for example. Jesus talked about repentance, teshuva. He talked about turning. Hmm. He called people to repent from their sins. He, uh, he, he talked about being perfect. He said, you know, what do, you, what do I do? He answered the question, what shall I do to be perfect? He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? So he said, repent. He said, be perfect. He tells the woman caught in adultery, go sin no more. But he doesn't give this, this sense of salvation to anyone asking for the religious answer to salvation, which I think is really significant. I think that we just ought to admit as Christians that when we talk about salvation, we are talking about an extra Jesus concept, an extra Jesus doctrine. I heard a guy 
give a talk one time on if you were to just use the Bible and try to figure out how you become saved, he's like, you would, I think you would be surprised. And there's stories where Jesus, um, interesting story when they lower the guy through the roof, right? And Jesus heals the guy and he looks at the guy and he actually says their faith because of their faith, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. Um, there's another time where, uh, the woman at the well, you know, so there's, there's never even a formulaic way in Jesus and how he talks to people and, and, and talks about what saves them or how their sins are forgiven. There's not just even one way that that happens in scripture when it relates to Jesus. There's a lot of different things that Jesus says because of their faith, because of your faith, because of this, your sins are forgiven, but it's not just one thing. There's many ways in which Jesus addresses that issue or talks about that. Sure. And there would be people that are listening to this podcast that may already be saying, oh, the reason that Jesus didn't talk about salvation is because he was salvation. He was, you know, he atoned for our sins on the cross. And I will just, I will simply say that we have made atonement theology out of what Jesus did on the cross. And I'm not trying to dismiss it. Uh, um, Jesus says himself, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we've taken that verse to mean that uh, what Jesus was referencing was the was that he that uh, he was ransoming us from the grip of sin or from the grip of the devil. And those those ideas they they do have have um, maybe roots in in things that Jesus said or that he teaches. But to get a sophisticated understanding of salvation. You have to go to Acts, honestly. So Peter stands up in Acts at Acts chapter two, and he quotes from the prophet Joel, talking about the the coming of the the uh, the day of the Lord. And at the end of that passage that Peter quotes on that day, he says the the prophet Joel says these words: "Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." And calling on the name of the Lord becomes very significant throughout the book of Acts. So I think what it is when Peter stands up in front of the Sanhedrin, he says, salvation is found in no other, no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Uh, this is, uh, that's Acts chapter chapter 4, verse 12. There's Salvation is found in no one else. There's no one under, under name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This idea of saving and salvation coming through Jesus or a confession of Jesus's name, this comes out of New Testament theology, the early church theology, right? G, uh, Paul says, if you be, um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But again, that's not Jesus who's who's telling us that. It's Paul. And, and to have an understanding of salvation in the New Testament in the early church, what it meant to be identified with Jesus was to risk one's life for the sake of the gospel. I mean, you, um, today, you know, I, I will see a, I see, I will see a person who is actively cheating on their spouse and they have a cross around their neck. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. we have no problem with it, <laughs> yeah. you know? And the, the Jesus sticker on their bumper. Ab- right? Absolutely. <laughs> the fish. Absolutely. I mean, we have we have so far from a New Testament concept of what it means to be associated with Jesus or saved, yeah. you know? And so I think that we should at least admit here at the beginning of this conversation about salvation that the two things, two things that I just want to drive home. First, 
we, we ought to admit that our understanding of salvation or doctrines of salvation, that's this idea of saving people, it doesn't just come from teachings of Jesus. It's not like with, with if we just have the Gospels, we don't have a con- a concept of salvation. Our understanding of salvation comes from the early church, from conversions of people, um, people coming to faith in Jesus in a particular way. And then, and that flows out of Acts, it flows out of the prophecy of Joel, and it flows out of Romans particularly. Is there, um, yeah, I, I think that the, maybe another thing that comes to mind that you've been talking about is, um, which I think takes us back to Billy Graham is this whole idea, like the four spiritual laws and the Romans road. And, and, and it's just interesting that we, the Romans road, I'm not real, um, up on that, you know, so I'm probably going to mess this up. And so if I, I speak negatively or wrongly of this, just forgive me, but it seems like there's four verses or something in the book of Romans that are picked out of a context of scripture, picked out of a, a bigger understanding that Paul was trying to get at that we've kind of plucked it out of um, passages that lead us or that, that, that makes us say, this is how you um, arrive at salvation. Well, yeah. I mean, the Romans road is essentially it's these verses that are all about sin. Um, While God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, th- these verses, we put we put them together to say, see, here's what salvation is about. And the reason that we do that, particularly as Protestants, and this is something that I that I was reading this week that I had I had either never read before or just completely missed when I read Luther's preface to the Romans before. Luther opens his preface to the Book of Romans by saying, this book is the most important book in all of the New Testament. It is pure gospel. Oh. That's what Luther says. And Luther's wrong. Romans is actually not pure gospel. It's commentary on the gospel. Right. And the two are different. Absolutely. And the problem the problem with Protestantism in my opinion is that misconception right there. It's the it's the root of the entire reformation that Luther was convinced that the gospel was the book of Romans, not Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Yeah. That's a massive problem. I yeah, and, and you have to read Romans in light of who Jesus is and what Come Jesus on. said. You got to start with Jesus and then read Romans, not start with Romans and read back into who Jesus was for but sure, this, but this is but this is what we've done, and this is how we have arrived at a theology and a doctrine of salvation that that looks like kind of Billy Graham. Sure. The the do you want to make sure that if you were to get hit by a car after you go home tonight, that you'll spend eternity in heaven or hell? Well, you need to make this decision. You need to just confess Jesus is Lord. So you're probably listening to this podcast, and you were thinking to yourself, "Well, it seems like." What are these crazy guys? Yeah, it seems like you're saying that what Billy Graham says isn't true. Or maybe you're challenging it. Maybe the idea that... So if you're going to challenge what Billy Graham says, well, then what is salvation? Right? Yeah. Yeah. You could probably think that we are really big heretics right now sitting across from each other. And... um, And and so let's just, you know, go out and we do believe in salvation. Should we just make that the base level we do believe well well absolutely i mean i think that i think that the question yeah i think that the question is not whether or not we believe in salvation i mean we've given our lives to jesus absolutely i think the question is what is salvation because i think that's the problem right right so yeah to your point to your point 
Call us heretics if you want to, folks. We we be, we've given our lives to Jesus, and our problem is the way that Jesus is being parsed in the world right now. The way that Jesus are people are the way that people are following Jesus are talking about Jesus. So maybe maybe this will be once again a a, a way that would differentiate how we have talked about it and how maybe a better way to talk about it is I feel like previous and what Romans wrote is and all of those things. And and we believe all those passages, we believe they're true in their context and understanding what they are. But it seems like our salvation message has been what we're saved from rather than what we're saved to or for or for yeah. and get out of hell. You don't want to go to that place. And so it's always been about what we are against but it seems like when Jesus talks about salvation, it's always an invitation to something, um, to live a way, to be a part of something rather than it's not just, hey, we're not, we don't want to go to this place, so do this. It's like, no, I'm inviting you to this amazing story that is being written for the world. And I want to see that in you as you are living and talking and breathing and doing all the things that you're doing. So it's a call to an invitation to uh, uh, welcoming into the story of God rather than let's not go to this place after we die. So let's I, I love I love all of that. Let's let's go to Jesus. Let's do a couple passages of Jesus that are that where we get where we get. Let's go to where we get born again, where we get some of these ideas of heaven and hell and then maybe move forward and see if even just in discussing the scripture together, if we can give ourselves, the listener, a, maybe a more full concept of salvation than maybe what's been uh, handed out, distributed via evangelicalism in the 20th century and 21st century in North America. So, okay, born again. Go. The idea of a born again believer comes out of John chapter three. Nicodemus. Yes, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Middle of the night. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Or... um. Born, born again is the term that comes out here. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very, true, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above or born again. The wind blows wherever it chooses. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, you are a teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things. And so, so Jesus... <laughs> Essentially, Nicodemus comes to Jesus asking, "Kind of, what's what's the heart of all of this?" And Jesus tells him, "You need to be you need to be reborn, born again, and that the Spirit of God moves wherever it pleases." And 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 essentially, what Jesus is saying is, "You're you are living your life trying to fit everything that happens in life into your doctrines and dogmas." But what I'm telling you is, life is change. The Spirit is change. And being a rabbi, being a teacher of Israel, is not about is not about knowing these dogmatic truths 
and then forcing them upon people. But it's about recognizing the work of the Spirit of God in the world and appropriating and teaching and 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 changing. Um, then Jesus goes on to say uh, this John 3.16 passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. This idea that it's not just about you know, the Jewish elitist clique making it into heaven in the end, Jesus comes proclaiming salvation for all people. Then he says what I think is equally as important of a verse as John 3.16, John 3.17. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved in him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe in him are condemned already. And so... This And then he talks about judgment. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because, how do we know that? Because their deeds were evil. We have this problem in Protestantism where we've separated, so Luther who says that Romans is pure gospel, Luther then goes on to say that we are saved apart from works. And Luther wants to throw out James, Jesus's brother, from the New Testament because G- James has this audacious claim that you can't be saved without having good works. Yeah. And Jesus, in this passage to Nicodemus, he says, you know, the fact of the matter is the light has come into the dark world, but the religious people, they love the darkness more than they loved light. Yeah. And it's evidenced by their, pretent- by their pretense. It's evidenced by the way they're living their lives. And so we actually have a really troubling passage here where Nicodemus, one of the best schooled rabbis of a generation, comes to Jesus and Jesus says, Nicodemus, we have a serious religious problem. I think it's crazy. So if we were to read further down, it keeps going. Jesus has this weird phrase where that says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And then he will draw all people to himself. But then we also, just like we sometimes neglect John three seventeen, we neglect the next verse that's right after that, where it says that this indicated the kind of death that Jesus was going to die. And so we talk about Jesus being lifted up and sometimes exalted. And I think that's good and grand. But the Jesus that's going to draw people to himself is this Jesus that was crucified, that was the suffering Jesus, this Jesus who says, I am among you. I know your pain. I've been where you are. And so the story that alludes to is with Moses is the people of God have sinned. God sends, uh, I got to get this right because my son will get me venomous serpents into, he's an animal guy and there's a difference between (laughs) poisonous and venomous. And uh, venomous serpents into the camp. They bite the people. They're dying. Moses creates a staff with the serpent on it, a bronze, lifts it up. If they look at the the snake, they live. If they don't, the serpents kill them, or the, 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 the snakes. So I think that what this speaks to, I feel like, in understanding what salvation is, is truly understanding that, that how we get to living the life that Jesus wants us to live is through the suffering Jesus, the Jesus who came for those who are on the outside of society, the marginalized, the oppressed, the, um, I think that's why he was, one reason crucifixion was a big deal was because it was on the outside of the city. He was crucified with the other people who were, um, 
destitute and and not in the middle of the city where the throne and all that was. It was outside, as a, a Jürgen Moltmann, great German theologian, says. It had to be that way because that's who he came to to re, to, to redeem and to lift up. Um, and so I think that that passage. Once again, we take one verse, you know, and Tim Tebow puts it underneath his eyes and, you know, football games and stuff. No, I'm sorry, Tim Tebow. But um, but we, we, we take one verse, but when you understand it in the context, salvation is not, uh, once again, this, this, um, this knowledgeable, this uh, concept, this doctrine that I have to believe. It's looking at the very thing that is killing us, that is, that is causing us to be less than. And the way that I am saved from that is I follow the one who is lifted up on the very pole because of the thing that is killing us and follow him in such a way that my redemption lies in his life and his sacrifice and his love. And in part of doing that and joining him is I try to live in such a way that the deeds, which I think, um, Jesus talked about in Matthew on some level in Matthew 25 that that when the judgment happens he had different qualifications for for what that looked like it wasn't just this intellectual um, understanding it was this way when you are saved when you are following when you are doing this you are trying to to make the world more like God's kingdom wants it to be. That when I created you in my image, it was to be an image bearer, a person that points to who I am, not who you just believe me to be or want me to be, but actually who I am. And we see who God is in Jesus in a, in a big and powerful and strong way. I felt like that I didn't love, make no, a whole I, lot of I, sense. I, that, no, that, made, that made a lot of sense. You're right. Uh, Jesus does reference the, that story from Moses and I, I love how you I love how you brought us to uh, in, in a similar way to the way that those people were saved in their lives they were legitimately saved by lifting their lifting their head and their gaze to uh, to the serpent to, to, to this this thing that God instructed them to lift their eyes to you know Jesus says you're saved in your life you know, by by lifting your eyes and your gaze to a particular thing. And in in this passage, judgment is about light and darkness and it is about deeds. The passage with Nicodemus is not about pie in the sky when you die. I think that's a Tony Campolo. Pie in the sky when you die by and by. I love that, dude. Yeah. Uh, but but this that's not what salvation is about here in the conversation with Nicodemus. It's about living. It's about life now. It's about change. It's about following the Spirit. And the evidence of, of salvation, of being born again in John 3, is following the, the Spirit and living living a life of light, of good deeds. Okay? That's, that's what comes out of John 3. There is no... Jesus... If Jesus wanted, if the point of Jesus coming was for people to accept Jesus into their heart so that they could be a part of the frozen chosen and go to heaven when they die, he could have easily said that to Nicodemus. Frozen chosen. No, That's it's... a Presbyterian thing, I think, is what they, they kind of kid they kind of kid about well, that. Which is interesting because you know, the whole we, we do quote the verse, if you confess me as Lord or whatever. But the interesting part in Matthew four, when the the tempter is tempting Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. 
He's not trying to tell Jesus you're not the son of God. He know he he would confess and even the demons, right, they get thrown into the pigs knew who Jesus was. And and so I mean, even the devil quoted scripture. So it's even more than just memorizing scripture as important as that potentially is in the life of the believer. Yes. The tempter quotes the Psalms as he's tempting Jesus. And so even just that story alone should let us know that it's not just about knowing who Jesus is or confessing who Jesus is or knowing a little bit of scripture because the tempter, he wasn't trying to tell Jesus, you're not the son of God. He was trying to say, what does it mean? What, what does it mean for you to be the son of God? And I have all of these ways for it to be way easier for you, way, uh, a way easier journey for you to, to be, to have the power that, that you are potentially looking after. But Jesus understood that the true, true salvation, true redemption for the world, for the world to truly be like he created it to be was not about power, but about how do I show them that the point the whole time was that we had to have this suffering love of serving and giving to each other. And that the way the world's going to be a different place is not just people who intellectually know who Jesus was, but people who literally have a life transformation in the understanding of who Jesus was that causes them to act differently, talk differently, see people differently, and respond to people in, once again, this self-sacrifice giving love. And when you look at the cross, if you don't see that, then I, I'm not sure what you're you're looking at in that that image. Yeah. I I do I do think that you just made a really great point about cognitive belief. We have made salvation in Protestant Christianity about cognitive belief. I know of pastors who ask people on their deathbed, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? And if the person nods, squeezes the hand, then families take solace that for eternity that person's going to be with God because they made some sort of mention, because they've made some sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, recognition verbally that they believe or verbally or non-verbally in some situations that they believed but jesus does not lift up the significance of cognitive belief for salvation ever he never does and we're not saying that that's untrue we're just saying jeremy's not jeremy's (laughs) not saying that that's untrue jeremy i'm getting disgusted in protestantism right now where we are excusing ungodly lives and saying that people are saved. I, I just think it's so unhealthy. And so I don't I don't know if you have to be extreme to make your point. But sure. I think it's safe it's safe that you're not saying that. I'm going to say I'm still undecided and you should and I'm you should saying be- <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm glad I don't have to decide what happens with that person for Hello. <laughs> no, it's a great point. Great like point. that's not up to me. That's exactly right. And so that's what I would say is God's got that part figured out. And so I don't, I just don't want to sit here and say that when that person nods the head or like, I don't know what's going on. And so I don't want to sit here and say this person did or didn't. I'll let God sort all that out. If that's that, that's what I'm, that's what I would say. Honestly. Yeah. I, um, 
there are moments where I can be fiery and almost irreverent. And I just felt very convicted, even just as you said that. Like, we're talking about, we're talking about, like, judgment and the eternal destiny of the almighty God. Right. Yeah. In some ways, this conversation is none of our business. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a, we're having the conversation because obviously it's so relevant. I mean, it's I think we're we think talking about, about the, the unfortunate shift and I think it has to do with modernity and enlightenment and all of this stuff that we have to know that we know what we know what we know and we don't like to admit the things we don't know that's right and so I think there is this mystery to the salvation but I do think it's way more than just this intellectual property that as long as I believe as long as I I said the prayer salvation's got to be way bigger than that or the world's in trouble if, if that's all it is and then i can go live however i want to because god has covered all my sins because i said that prayer when i was five years old then the world's in trouble but that leads into this eschatology i think that we have about the world as well i don't know if we want to get into that but god's going to destroy it so it doesn't matter anyway why do i want jeremy's the world not, to be redeemed jeremy's not lifting up that eschatology he's just no. saying that's it's that's, prevalent yeah it's out there it's out there and so it makes sense in that understanding because you can say a prayer, God's going to destroy this anyway. It doesn't matter. And uh, you're going to go be wherever. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, you've already referenced Matthew 25. Yeah. So I think in the same way that uh, in the really in the mid 20th century in North America, this idea of being born again was kind of the rallying cry at Billy Graham crusades and then folks that called themselves really distinguished themselves from other Christians maybe more more moderate or mainline Christians people started distinguishing themselves as being born again believers yeah and this is really in in inside evangelicalism the world in which we live this was a very significant subgroup of people the born again, the born again believer. So that's why we read we read John three because really that's where that comes out of. But but the idea of heaven and hell, yeah, and the urgency of heaven and hell. There are several different points in the New Testament where Jesus or in the Gospels where Jesus talks about heaven and hell, talks about um, eternal blessedness or damnation. Okay, the most troubling of the stories, in my opinion, is Matthew twenty five. We've referenced this before, and you mentioned Campolo, and it's. It's rumored, I think it's true, every time he preaches, he always gets back to Matthew 25. It makes it in every one of his sermons, which is just kind of fascinating. Sorry. It's because it's, it's very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Just when the that. Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory. The nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people as, from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right hand, come, you are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the foundation of the world for I was hungry you gave me food I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked you clothed me I was sick and you took care of me I was in prison and you visited me then the righteous will answer him Lord when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink and when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing and when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you and the king will answer him truly answer them truly i tell you just as you did for one of the least of those least of these who are members of my family you did it for me so that's the first half and i just think it's worth noting the people that are saved in this story the people who are invited into 
eternal blessedness do not expect it mm. okay when? they're surprised surprised yeah they have no idea okay that's or no expectation yeah. that they're doing it for that they're just doing it it's a part of who they are part of who they are um that that should grip us about this story mm-hmm so then the next group of people, then he will say to those on his left hand, you are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was, and this is where, that's part of the, that's one of the phrases where we get the idea of hell as a place where devil and, and demons and angels live. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What what The most troubling part to me of this passage is the second part where those people who he says, um, you know, away from me, they say, Lord, they, the unrighteous, um, they identify, they identify Jesus, you know, as, as Lord, recognizing who he is. They obviously perceive themselves to have done what should have been done to earn the merits of eternal blessedness. Mm. They are very confident that they have done what is required of them. And Jesus says, listen, the requirements of this, the requirements to enter eternal blessedness are very simple. They're the things you did not do. Nowhere in this story of the judgment does Jesus, does Jesus say, you know, but had you prayed a prayer, that magical prayer, had you made a decision I, I heard a preacher recently say that you could make a decision in a moment whether where you would spend eternity. Jesus never says that, particularly here. He says that all the people at the judgment are surprised at the outcome, and particularly the people who felt entitled to eternal blessedness, they're shocked, and they even put up a little protest. They argue, you know? And... This Matthew 25 is part of the reason that I am upset about how we talk about salvation in the church. Because I don't feel that it's my job as a pastor to make people feel good about themselves or to give them, to your point, to give them some sort of judgment from God. I'm not God. I feel like my job is to tell people what Jesus said. And you know what Jesus said? Be, the people at judgment who are, are going to receive you know, eternal, eternal blessedness. They're the people that were concerned with the things with, with the people, with the poor, with the hungry, with the naked, with those in prison, with those who are sick. He says nothing about theological sophistication. Absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. I think that it's, um, it reminds me of a lot of, of stories that, that we've shared previously on, on the podcast. Um, but one story that 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 I've I've used many times after you told you used it was the the no elbow story about eternity um, and how 
there's a great banquet hall. People walked in and there's well, yeah, so the food. Just, All right, go ahead. You probably tell. So, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah, there's, yeah. There's a man who a man who dies. He goes to heaven, and uh, I think it's Peter that is giving him. It's the, always Peter. Is, yeah, the it's gatekeeper <laughs> giving him giving the tour, and uh, he says, he says, um, this is uh, this is this is hell. Yeah, and the the guy the guy um, they they approach a large banquet room, and um, he looks. He looks at in the banquet in the banquet um, hall, and what's happening is you have you have this massive feast, this beautiful feast, uh, with with all the food that you could ever imagine. Beautiful setting, and there's people everywhere. But they ha- all of these people are extended. They have extended arms without elbows, and they're trying to get the food into their own mouths, and they can't. They just can't do it. Yeah. And so they're they're just in torture and in agony that all this beautiful food is in front of them and they can't feed themselves. And the guy says, "Okay, this is this is hell," you know. So he walks him through to heaven. Heaven, exact same room, same setup, same feast, same elbow problem. <laughs> These people don't have elbows. But in heaven, all of the people are reaching and dipping food for those who sit across from them at the table and they're laughing and they're singing and they're rejoicing and they're like oh give me some of that over there and oh can i get some of that and they're just they're just blessing each other right and they're just helping feed each other yeah and 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 that is that's the picture of of heaven in this one particular parable so what's interesting to me is with matthew 25 which i think this story speaks very well of is I do think that once again, if that's what the kingdom is like, if that's what it is, then why do we think that we're going to like to be in a place that is about self giving love and welcoming the stranger and welcoming the one who is different than me and serving all of those. What about where we find ourselves? If I don't, if I'm not living that way now, I'm pushing those people aside. I'm not welcoming those people. I'm not allowing those people to be a part of my life. What makes me think I'm going to enjoy that for eternity? If that's what heaven's like, if that's the picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25, if that's the picture of what an understanding of salvation is, is your call to this life, because this is what heaven is like. This is what it means to be a part of this great narrative, this kingdom, this story, is you serve other people. And we, we, we live in a place, once again, that is one very individualized. Individualization is huge in our context, in our culture. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get. It's all about, am I taken care of? It's all about this. And we don't see that in the gospel, that that is not what it means to follow Jesus. And so am I, do I really want to go to a place that isn't about myself? Am I going to be happy in a place that is all about the other and serving the other? And, and, and so what makes me think that if that's how I'm living here and that's how I'm choosing to live and listen, we could get into politics if you want to, how do we, how do we treat all people all the time? And have we so individualized our salvation? We so individualized my understanding of my life in my secular life, and I hate that term, but in my everyday to day life that bleeds into my spiritual life, what makes me even have the foggiest notion that when I get to a place that is centered around Jesus and who he is and centered around who he came to be, that somehow I'm just going to wake up and think, oh yeah, now I want to welcome all those people. 
Am I becoming, um, and I think this is C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Great Divorce, in the decisions that I make and how I treat people now and how I am, am I becoming the person that I will potentially be for eternity? That I, I want to try to serve myself and if I can, I'm going to get real upset about it. And the salvation that Jesus is calling us to is away from that. Maybe he is calling us away from something. Maybe that's the hell that he's calling us away from. And it's not um, all the things that we've made it to be. I think it'll be a terrible place. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But is he calling us away from selfish, individualistic understanding of who I am in the grand scheme of the world and the narrative of the world and calling me to this self-giving, this selfless, this this understanding of I got to welcome the stranger and the foreigner and the person who doesn't have water and the, 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 the I need to go visit the person in prison and the person who's naked, I need to clothe them. It's all about this selfless, my life is to be lived for others. And so it just makes me wonder like if that's the image of the kingdom and what we are being called to, and if that's what it means to be saved as I am now finding my life and my identity and my purpose and my plan in that story, why do I think heaven is going to be this place that's different than that? That that's like, Jesus is like, just do that on earth, but in heaven, it's going to be all about you and what you want. And, and, and I don't want to, poo-poo on your idea of what heaven's going to be like. But sometimes it drives me crazy when people are like, I'm just going to be fishing all day long. Like, really? And I think it comes from this. That's what I like to do. And so that's what heaven's going to be like because that's my my personal feeling about what it is. Yeah. You're going to have whatever you want, whatever you like. And and and, and it, it's just this, I feel like just once again, this narcissistic understanding of of not understanding that God's calling us to not that life. He's calling us into something totally so, different. I'm sorry. No, I got to tell you a story just to your, rant to, your, over. To, your, to your point. It's not just a rant. It's very relevant. There are, uh, throughout my life, just at different times, I've had the opportunity to have relationships with people that are not necessarily, you know, born uh, born into the church Christians um, and there was a there was a kid that I had uh, connected with a high school kid, who I'd um, employed to do some work at the church. A really brilliant kid, didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. And we had started having conversations about Jesus, and he kept started hanging around the church more. And so I took him with me to a youth camp. He was a junior senior in high school. I took him with me to a youth camp where I was um, called to be the musician, and there was a speaker. Well, the speaker gets up. And starts talking about heaven. And the speaker is this athletic, attractive guy. And he says, you know, in heaven, I'm going to be able to dunk on Shaquille O'Neal. A basketball, right? Dunk a basketball on Shaquille O'Neal. And he said, in heaven, and he starts talking about all these things that he wants to do. And that's what he's going to do in heaven. So after after the after the service, I pull my, my, uh, my buddy aside who has been, uh, you know, uh, who came along and I said, I'm curious what you thought about the sermon. He said, that guy's version of heaven is not a place that I would want to spend my life in. Huh. That guy dunks on me all the time. I don't, I don't really want to go to a place where I just have to watch him continue to dunk on people. <laughs> 
the thing is, the thing is, Jeremy, this guy, you know, is an evangelist that gets called around, you know, it, but, but even what's so crazy is like our understanding of salvation has affected the way that we do economics. It's affected the way that we do politics. There are people out there that think that theology is a secondary issue. What we need to do is we need to take care of the problems in the world and then we'll take care of theology problems later. The reason that I'm a pastor is because I believe fundamentally that our economic and our social problems are theological problems. We have Christians who legitimately believe that God is calling them into a nurse is calling them to give him give himself to them in just in a way that just affects their mind that just affects their belief so that they can live in a narcissistic asylum in if for eternity and it's 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 hogwash it's wrong that guy's version of heaven if it's if his version of heaven can be someone else's version of hell that it doesn't work it just doesn't work. Wow. And and I'm and what your your little you said it was a rant. That wasn't a rant. It was so it was so important. Uh the the reason um so Rauschenbusch last last year I, I think I mentioned this before. Last year for one of my courses, I read all of the published works of Walter Rauschenbusch between nineteen oh seven and nineteen seventeen. Walter Rauschenbusch was an evangelical Christian uh, in the early 20th century who who propagated what was understood to be the social gospel. It was given a dirty name after his death. It was associated with the Red Scare and communism, and it was made all of these things that it wasn't what, what it wasn't. Essentially, Rauschenbusch, who was a capitalist, he had a problem with Christianity in America because he was looking around and he was saying, okay, we have these rich people who say that they're saved but these people that are working for them are working in slums and it doesn't it just doesn't make logical sense if we're reading the gospel if we're reading the gospel the gospel that saves a rich person has to become social in the way that Jesus said to the rich young man sell everything that you own and give to the poor you know people poor people that come into salvation salvation for them on earth ought to look like they're able to own homes salvation for them ought to look like they're not having to steal to get food for their children salvation for them ought to look like they're able to to have to have um health care obviously it looked different in the early 20th century than it does now in the beginning of the 21st century goodness gracious but uh Maybe that's another podcast for another day. Just, you know, because of the bureaucracy of it all and the complication of it all. And But but the thing is, Rauschenbusch was not proposing some sort of government program. But he was saying to rich people, hey, you rich people, you're spending your time in politics and governments just trying to pad yourselves. What we should be doing as Christians is we should be concerned primarily with the poor among us. Mm. You know, and uh, he, Rauschenbusch was right. I and mean, he was just right. He, he had salvation correct. He understood correctly what Jesus was coming to do. Yeah. He was coming to change. When, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is for everybody. Mm. It's not. There's not an elitist club that gets to, that gets the benefits of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is a call for salvation for the world, and that when people are truly saved, they bring people along with them. They lift up the you know uh, the last will be first, the first will be last. Um, it's a prioritization. Uh, if I'm a part of the kingdom of God, the evidence of that is that I is that I prioritize others. You know, I can't be a rich person that is saved. Actually, 
that doesn't prioritize others. You know, I bashed Martin Luther here at the beginning, but Martin Luther's definition of faith is actually the Wesleyan definition of sanctification. Luther says we aren't saved by works, but if you have faith, you're just doing works because that's what faith is. You know, it's, again, you know, some of you are out there like, man, you really want to have your cake and eat it too. And and I do. I have this very, I have a very complicated relationship with Luther. I have a very complicated relationship with a lot of things. I have a very complicated relationship with Jeremy, for goodness sake, you know. I mean, but. Well, just because you disagree with somebody about one thing doesn't mean you disagree with them about everything. Yeah, but but I I, I guess I want to make that point though. You know, we've, we've. We love what Luther we love sola scriptura. We love Romans. We love uh, uh, sola sola uh, sola gratia, faith grace alone. But sola fide, the idea of faith alone, for Luther, faith, the faith, a life of faith was evidenced by good works. Now those good works don't save you, according to Luther. I mean, and and it just becomes this deep theological, uh, you know conversation at a, at a certain at a certain place but but even for the reformer for which we get a lot of our from from which we get a lot of our theological problems he was kicking against a system that he needed to use particular language to kick against particular things sure. in his time period and he would look at us and t- today and he would and he would say to himself wait a second what's going on here i was a pastor i was trying to kick against a wealthy bureaucratic system of believers or, or, or of, of Christians, you know, of establishment religion. And all you've done with my work is you've created and further insulated yourselves with a bureaucratic system of religion that's nonsense, you know? <laughs> History repeats itself, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I think that, that um, once again, Brian Stevenson, we quote him a lot, but he said the way to, to, to determine or to judge a society, I'm going to butcher the quote, but this is, this is pretty general. It's pretty close. It's not how you treat the richest among you, but how you how a society treats the poor. The true judgment of a culture is not how you treat those who look like you and talk like you. But if you really want to to see where a, a society is and how it's doing, is how does it treat those who are less fortunate among you? And that's the true the true character of that culture is based on um, on that understanding. So regarding salvation, we we started we started with talking about uh, John, Nicodemus, be born again. We've talked about judgment and kind of how you know Jesus doesn't say anything about you know making a decision, but really actions are what lead to ultimate salvation in the end, as far as eternal destiny is concerned. What ought we to say about the Acts understanding of salvation as identifier? So this is, and this is a theme throughout Ask, Acts. Um, confess, um, people would confess Jesus as Lord. You know, um, they, would, they would pray, they would be baptized. I mean, Acts is a book that talks about conversion. Sure. Right? And then Paul, Paul really, you know, he expounds upon people who are, have converted and what that looks like later. I, I think it's even back to what I talked about, I think at the beginning is, is that there is potentially a moment, right? That you begin this journey, but I think for different people, it probably happens different ways of trying to say, this is, I want to live like Jesus, who he wants, how he wants me to be, what that looks like, but it's just the beginning. Um, I think Paul would say, 
like I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's it's this life Whoa. journey yes. of of learning what it looks like. And and one of the the best instances I feel like that you see this is in Acts ten, the story of Cornelius. I think we maybe have even talked about this before, but where a lot of people see that as Cornelius's conversion. But Peter's the one who actually has another salvation moment in his life and has to make a decision about the animals that come down in the cloth. Yeah. And, and am I going to go into this Gentile's house? And it was a conversion moment for him where the story was no longer just for the Jews, but it was opened up. And And I would say that was a salvation moment. That was a moment that God changed Peter's heart to to understand more of what the kingdom looks like. And so understanding that salvation is not a one-time thing. It is, um, I'm born again, 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 and again. And and it doesn't mean you go to, in our tradition, to the altar every Sunday. It could happen on a Tuesday when you're confronted with a moment. Am I going to be saved in this moment? I'm going to respond, or we would say even sanctified in that moment, that it's this, it's this journey that begins at a, once again, in our tradition, we call it a crisis. There's a crisis where I have to decide, am I going to follow this Jesus or not? Um, and, but it doesn't end. It doesn't end. We're always learning what this kingdom looks like, always giving ourselves to the others, always trying to figure out how to do it better um, and, and be more selfless than, than selfish. And I think that's it's a process to, to, get, um, to get that understanding out of our lives. So, so I think that sometimes we, I think that we've been asking the wrong question about salvation. We ask the question, are you saved? And I love what you just said in referencing kind of Paul, Pauline understandings of salvation. Really, there is kind of this threefold. I was, I was saved and redeemed at one point. I'm being saved right now. And I am in the end, you know, my salvation is dependent on God alone. You know, I will be saved. Uh, what I love the analogy of marriage for the analogy of a, of a relationship with God. And so when people ask me the question, you know, how do I know if I'm saved? My question, my, my response to the question is, a, is another question. How do you know when you're married? Hmm. Well, it's obvious. I, I got married. You know, I, I pursued a particular woman or man. You know, I, we, we got engaged. We got married. You know, we wear rings. We're in this faithful relationship. You know, um, and I said, well, how do you know, how do you know if you're being unfaithful or how do you know if you're getting divorced? Like, well, if I'm unfaithful, you know, I'm starting to veer away from my relationship. You know, maybe there's sexual infidelity, you know, um, or, you know, I can formally, you know, get a divorce. And I said, you know, the operative analogy throughout scripture for God's relationship to his people is romance, you know? So we're asked the question of whether or not I'll be saved when I die. Maybe the question ought to be, are you married to God? Mm. You know, is there evidence in your life that you're married to God? And are you growing in a marriage relationship with God? That when you die, you're laying there at your deathbed, holding hands with God, mm. you know, and that you, you, you pass into just the sweet rest of knowing that you're living with God. That, that might be a better question um, you know, this, this once saved, always saved question that people come up to me with, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't entertain it because I'm not God. I don't know what the math is, if there even is math, 
but I know what it means to walk with God. I know that Jesus calls me to follow the the leanings of the spirit throughout my life. And that's what I'm committed to. And I think that for all of us, I think that that's what we ought to be called to and what we ought to be calling others to is into a vibrant relationship with Jesus, one of covenant, you know, one of promise. Uh, and in the end, hopefully that will, will save us and maybe even those around us. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 